Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors, and today we're going to be in Luke and Matthew. So this is a day where maybe you just look at the screens, you know, and keep up with some notes if you'd like to. We really do want you to know this is in the Scripture. We'd love for you to be able to check us, check your notes later, make sure that this is coming from Jesus, not just from Hope Church, but the teaching that we're going to be going through is continuing this sort of concept of lost and found. We've been thinking about two ways that people generally attempt to go from separated from God to in relationship with God. And we can use those words as lost and found, kind of taking some, uh, you know, kind of metaphorical language to try and say, like, to be separated from God, to be lost is to be separated from the thing that you're hoping to be in. Uh, uh, we, in Easter, we talked about this parable where two sons exhibit two different ways to get what everybody seems to want. You're built, and I am too, to desire something. We're looking for it. And people define that thing in a lot of different ways. Some people define it as things that you sort of make for yourself, things that you decide you think would be pleasurable, that would give you, I mean, we use these categories and they seem a little bit dry, but, but if you think about it for a second, I think they make sense, that would give you security, that would make you feel okay, that would give you satisfaction, that would make you feel good, and that would give you significance. That would make you feel like you're a person, a, a person of worth, a person with importance, that your life has meaning. And some people decide that they're going to define that for themselves. They're going to go and find it in the world based on what they kind of write for themselves as the rules. We talk about that, and we talk about the, the parable had a, a younger son. So there's a father with two sons. The younger son goes to the father and says, all right, I'm done with my relationship with you. Let's pretend you're dead. Give me the stuff that you would give me when you die, and I'm just going to take it and leave. I'm not going to ever see you again. And so, crazily, this is the story, the father does that, and he gives the inheritance to the younger son. The younger son takes it to another country and squanders it in loose living, prostitutes, alcohol, you know, just going as hard as he can, party life. He loses it all. But what he's doing is he is seeking. He's seeking some kind of satisfaction, certainly, but even some kind of significance to be the important guy, to be the big spender, and probably even security, to have that stuff be his and not his father's, not to be dependent on anyone else. Now, again, it doesn't work out for him. And last week, we actually talked about that younger brother sort of lifestyle. We talked about how what's horrible about it is the, the, the bad decision-making that can take place in that kind of a pursuit. Real people get hurt in real ways when you do that. At the same time, there's actually a silver lining to it, which is that if your life doesn't work out when you do that, then you realize you need something else. That it that you might pursue for, for significance, for satisfaction, and for security, that it of, of self-discovery, that it of just kind of finding it out in the world is flimsy enough that maybe it'll break and show you that it was never really what you needed. When that happens, you become like that younger son who lost everything. He, he spent it all, but then he also lost everything because a famine hit, and so the poor become poorer, and he begins to work at somebody else's house just feeding that guy's pigs, but he makes so little that he doesn't even have enough food. He, he wishes he could eat what the pigs are eating. 
That, that it for him, that life, that, that thing he thought was going to really be what he wanted broke so thoroughly that he comes back to his dad. Now, the beautiful love of the gospel we see is that the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the, the Lord comes and like seeks him and grabs him and hugs him and brings him back to himself. Woo, that's the big gospel moment we think of the parable. But, but what I want to kind of capture from that guy is something that Jesus taught. So in Matthew, the first book of the New, Te- uh, yeah, of the New Testament, it's the first gospel we have, gospel meaning like telling of the good news of the life of Jesus. Jesus begins his teaching with the Sermon on the Mount, and he begins the Sermon on the Mount with something called the Beatitudes. That just means the, the people who are blessed. And we say that because he has these several things he says right in a row where he says, blessed are the, and then he tells who the blessed people are, and he tells why. And it's very surprising because the people who he says are blessed are people that you would not want to be. And the very first one is the younger brother in the pigsty. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is the one that realizes I don't have it because that's the person who's looking around to try and find what only the Lord can give. And the younger brother finds that. He comes back and he's grabbed by the father. Blessed is he. Absolutely. You're going to get pig mess on you, but you're going to come out the other side of that with the robe put back on your shoulders. Yeah, blessed is that one. But if you continue to read Jesus' teaching, he has the blesseds, the beatitudes there at the beginning of the, gospel, of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. But later on, he also says the word woe. Woe to thee. And then he'll talk about a group of people. And honestly, this is what's so upside down about it. The people that he says woe to are the people that you would want to be. That you'd hope your kids would be. That you'd hope your daughters would marry. He says woe, meaning instead of blessed, but cursed are. The scribes and the Pharisees. The people who are the impressive, righteous leaders of God's people. And he says, woe to the scribes and the Pharisees for several different reasons. And that woe is captured by the story of the older brother in our parable that we've been looking at. That woe means that from Jesus' perspective, there is something really bad about being really good. There's something really dangerous about your life looking really good if it's not good all the way down. One of the most scary things Jesus taught is he taught about these people that will come to him on judgment day. So you imagine you're in this whatever judgment day is. You're on the outside of heaven. I don't know, wherever it takes place. And you stand before him. And these people are standing before him and they're happy. They live their lives with a lot of self-denial in order to build up for this moment. And they stand before him with all of their good works. And he says, depart from me, for I never knew you. Your, your miracles that you did, your incredible teaching that you did, your incredible work that you did for the poor, I, I don't know you. You did that for yourself. You, you didn't do that for me. I don't know you. And so with all their good works, they get cast away. Do you see the danger there? What's so scary about being lost is scary-er for the person who doesn't realize they're lost. 
Today I want to think about the older son, and I want to ask some questions about it, because there's something here that's really dangerous, clearly, but there's something that's also very seductive. And the gospel solution to that problem is one that I don't know that everybody knows about. You might know about it on paper, but there are a lot of people who profess the gospel who are also going to hear on that day, depart from me, I never knew you. So I want to think about it in those three ways. That older brother lifestyle, we've talked about it as moral conformity, we've talked about it as self-righteousness, the idea that you're going to look at yourself and use everything that you can kind of gin up within yourself to accomplish the traditions that have been handed down, to accomplish the teaching of people that you think are in authority over you, to be the good boy or the good girl. But the problem is, while on the outside that can be really impressive, the inside is the greater question. I want to ask, I want to see, what is the problem there? If we can understand the problem, then we'll be sickened by it and immediately say, oh, I would never do that. Okay, well then let's understand the appeal of it. (laughs) All right, we understand how destructive it is. Let's understand why you might choose that. And then let's really dig into God's gospel solution that he's got for us. So the problem, what is the problem? Well, in Luke 15, and that's a parable about the two sons, the father brings the younger son back. He receives him. He loves him. He puts the robe on him, the ring on his finger, and he orders that the fatted calf be killed for them to throw the biggest party they've ever thrown. And then they're having the party. They invite the whole town, the whole village to come and celebrate because this, my son, was lost, but now he's found. And the older brother hears that something's happening. He comes back and he asks the servants what's happening. And they tell him, your father's killed the fatted calf because your brother has come home. And the older brother comes to the party, but he doesn't go in and requires the father to come to him. Here's what it says in Luke chapter 15, starting verse 28. The older brother was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered the father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this This son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes? You killed the fatted calf for him? Now, this is, in Jesus' genius, this is very quickly and, and very, like, economically showing you really specific things about this guy's heart. Not about his actions, but about his heart. And I want to understand it. Let's look at the problem. Well, first, this guy, the self-righteous guy, the guy who's impressed with his own work, is angry about the son coming home. Now, anger can be a good thing. God gave you anger. Anger is what we call the justice emotion. This is your superhero emotion. Alistair Groves, Winston Smith, biblical counselors, they said in a book called Untangling Emotion, excellent book, I highly recommend it. He said, when you're angry, what's happening inside you is this. Your heart is observing the scene before you and crying out that something you love is being treated unjustly. So this is what gives you the, the strength to, you know, like lift a car off your kid. This is what gives you the strength to like, you know, fight off an attacker in your house. This is what God gives you to protect what you love. Now, of course, the big problem is, do you love the right thing? Are you protecting something that needs to be protected? I think we all can see in our normal lives and relationships that we've had that, that people can have really destructive anger. 
Well, anger is always destructive. That's what it's supposed to be. You destroy the bad guy. Okay, but I mean like anger that destroys what you do want to preserve or what you do love. Oh, you say you love your kid, but as soon as they cross you, what happens? There's, there's a problem there. And you can get at the heart of it by asking that question. If, if anger protects what you love, then if you're feeling angry, you can ask the question, what do I love that is being threatened right now? Now, a lot of the times when you're angry, you don't have time to like take out a chalkboard and try to like diagram your emotions. I get that. But in the aftermath, or hopefully you can go outside and you know, take a breath, when you can think through it, what do I love that's being threatened here? What did the older brother love that's being threatened by receiving back the younger son, by throwing the party for the younger son? Well, there's a couple things being threatened. He's threatened because the stuff that he loves is being used to celebrate this terrible son. So he's losing stuff. The stuff, the fatty calf, he wanted that. And now you cut it up and you're giving it to all these people. He could go in the party and eat some, but that's not the point, and I think that's the other thing. He's not getting the honor that he thinks he deserves. The honor that he's thinking that should be given to him is being handed off to this younger son, this terrible son that's come back. I'm saying that from his perspective. What he loved is being threatened, and what he loved very tellingly is not the father or the brother. What he loved is this stuff that he hoped was coming back to himself. He's angry. But he also refuses to go in. In that way, he's showing himself to actually be disobedient. That's kind of strange to think. This guy's characterized by obedience, and yet the father clearly wants him to come in and enjoy the party. And in that way, refusing to go in, he's being disobedient. He's clearly also confident in his own rightness. If you read the speech that he gives to the father, he is clearly very entitled. He's saying, I'm good, therefore I deserve fill in the blank. Have you ever felt that way? Don't forget, the whole point of us going through this is not to like beat up this imaginary character that Jesus made up. The point of this is to ask whether or not Jesus thinks this might be you. Do you get entitled? Is there a part of you that thinks, hey, I studied, I should get the grade, I should get the admiration, I should get the good job. I'm really good at what I do for a job. I should get the promotion. I should be paid at this level. It should allow me to have time to go on these kind of vacations or have this kind of recreation. You think, okay, I provide really well for my children. Their life is better than the life I had growing up. So they owe me. They owe me respect and obedience. They owe me deference. They owe me to at least get the job that I want them to have. Entitled, right? The idea is, I'm so great, shouldn't the world recognize that? I think we would use the word proud to describe that idea. The self-righteous person, the entitled person, is a proud person. A proud person who, when bad things happen, doesn't just endure the bad thing. They also have to endure the injustice that a bad thing would happen to them. You know, we talk about why do bad things happen to good people? And that's usually we talk about like the Holocaust or, you know, like we talk about something really, really difficult and we're asking the question of how can a good God allow such a thing? Great. Let's talk about that. That's awesome. 
But don't you realize that you and I say that about like everything? There's two people in line at the ATM. Why do bad things happen to such good people? Why must I wait? What are they even doing? Get out of my way. What? But you feel it. I feel it. Why? Well, there's a pride that's there. There's an anger. There's a confidence that he's right. There's a refusal to go into party. There's a disobedience. But ironically, the other brother is also isolated. See, the younger brother isolates himself. He takes himself out of the family. He cuts himself off from the father. He cuts himself off from the community. He cuts himself off from his brother by going away to this far country, right? Okay, well, look at the older brother. In the opposite way, he's done the exact same thing. By refusing to go in, he is isolating himself from his brother, clearly. But also, he's isolating himself from his father. The accusation is not just, why'd you forgive him? The accusation is, why haven't you honored me? And clearly, he's also cutting himself off from the community. The whole town is in there partying. Shouldn't he go in there and just accept his place within that greater community? Why does he demand they all come out and kiss the hem of his robe? In his pride, he has isolated himself. You see the opposite in the way that the father talks. The father says, son, you're always with me. Everything that's mine is yours. Do you hear the love that's there? He sees the relationship from the beginning. I'm so glad that you're my son. You're terrible, but I love you. And I love your other terrible brother. And we've always been together. Isn't that wonderful? But the son doesn't see it. The son, in his pride, has instead chosen to cut himself off. In his pride, he has instead chosen to see the other as wicked and himself as righteous. Now, as soon as you do that, you draw a circle. And you say, everybody inside the circle, clearly myself, is right. And everybody outside the circle, clearly that person, is wrong. And I am what's right with the world, and they are what's wrong with the world. Us versus them. That's the opposite of the gospel, but that's what this guy says. And as soon as he does that, he steps into the thing that everybody around the world is doing. He steps into the thing, this is so crazy, that Jesus is showing us that everybody does. Whether you consider yourself somebody that's very traditional or you consider yourself somebody that's very progressive. As soon as you say, I'm right, then you're implying they're wrong. This is what this guy, so Tim Keller, talking about um, uh, this concept in that book, Prodigal God, which our community groups are going through. He says, the moral conformists say, it's the immoral people, the people who do their own thing. They are the problem with the world, and the moral people are the solution. The advocates of self-discovery instead say, it is the bigoted people, the people who say we have the truth, who are the problem with the world. And we progressive people are the solution. Each side says, our way is the way the world will, put, will be put to rights. And if you are not with us, you are against us. In saying that, they do what we call being judgmental. But in being judgmental in the exact same way as the opposite team, you step right into Romans 2, which says, you have no excuse, oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Do you understand that when you're being judgmental, what you're doing is 
inviting somebody else to look at your life and see if the same thing isn't there. The older son in his self-righteousness was convinced that he was right and the younger son was wrong. It never occurred to him that they were both wrong. When we speak out against being judgmental, we don't mean that there's not a judgment. We just mean that it's God's, not ours. There is still a right. There is still a wrong. What's crazy is that they were both wrong. Man, he was indignant at his brother's good. And he cut himself off. So you put all this together and you get somebody who on the outside is very impressive. He certainly self-denies uh, himself. He has a lot of self-control. He's definitely somebody who works very hard. He's definitely somebody who works very hard for what seems like kind of honorable things, like the family and the local town and the, and the farm that he's working on. On the outside, he's very impressive. He's who you want to be like. You know, if you're in the village and you see those two boys, you don't tell your kids to be like the younger son, do you? You tell them to be like the older son, right? On the outside, he's very impressive. But on the inside, he's filled with anger, judgment, isolation, hate, entitlement, self-righteousness. Things that are poison. Things that are death. And honestly, and this just shows you how little I know the Bible, I took a time this week to try and like think, like, how can I illustrate that? And then like smacked in the back of the head by the Holy Spirit. Jesus, he, he already told us how to illustrate that. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Ouch. But do you see it? On the outside, you're impressive, but on the inside, you're filled with all of this rottenness that eventually is going to, again, rot you out. There's a New Testament, Old Testament scholar team, Andreas Kostenberger and, and Gregory Goswell. And they're talking about Matthew, and they're talking about just all of Jesus' teaching in this way, because Jesus says this stuff a lot. And this is how they say it. They say, any, really, uh, any only external, outside obedience of the law which doesn't arise from purity of heart and a genuine heartfelt hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirst for righteousness is another beatitude. They're bringing that language in. This is Jesus saying, you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll be filled. If you have a heart that desires God's way, that thing will again start to happen. God's going to do that in you and through you. But if you take out that desire, you will absolutely, without question, inexorably result in hypocrisy. If you have outside obedience to, the God, uh, to God, but inside you just desire to care for yourself, that is hypocrisy, as in the case of the scribes and the Pharisees. They had these religious exercises whose external facade betrays a lack of inner devotion to God. And it is therefore schizophrenic. Two different people inside you. Disingenuous. It's just lying. Ultimately, it is deceptive. Do you see that? It's true. Okay. Is it you? And you're like, no, definitely not. That's awful. That would never be me. I mean, I know sometimes it's me, but most of the time I'm like the younger brother because he's the good guy. Okay. Well, let's talk about the appeal. If the problem is there and it's really gross, then why would you ever choose it? What would seduce you into this world? Well, we're going to go to another Jesus' teaching. 
And we're going to talk about it. Uh, Matthew 21, Jesus tells another parable. It's around the same time. He's, he's also talking to the Pharisees. It's during Holy Week. But he, he says, there's a master of a house who planted a vineyard. And he put a fence around it. And he dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And he leased it out to tenants. And then he goes into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and they beat one and they killed another and they stoned another. So again, he sends other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Now, this is Jesus telling this parable, and he's telling this parable to the scribes and the Pharisees about the scribes and the Pharisees. And they respond in a justice way. They say, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give uh, him the fruits in their season. Now, we've got to really quickly orient ourselves in this parable because we're almost out of time. The master who builds this beautiful garden and puts the wall around it is clearly God. That's the Lord. He builds this world and he puts us in it. And he is the master and he is the maker and he's the maker of all things, not just like the church. He's the maker of like you, everything that you think of as you. He made. It says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? Oh, it's in my car. It's my brother's car. Oh, so it's not your car. No, no, it's my brother's car. Jesus is saying that about everything. It's not your time. It's God's time. It's not your eyeball. It's God's eyeball. You're just using it. It's not your brain. It's not your intelligence. It's God's intelligence. And just lending it. If your computer runs really great, that's not up to you. It certainly doesn't result in your honor. God gave you a great computer. He gave the next guy maybe not so great a computer. Your computer got from where you started to now with a lot of good input and with nobody like spilling Sprite on it. Other people's computer, you know, they got fried a little bit. Paul's talking about comparing yourself with other people, but the implication is, of course, that everything we have is the Lord's. He's the master. The tenants, the people that he puts in to lead this garden and to work it, are, of course, the leaders of the people, but I would say it's probably just kind of people in general. This is definitely the Pharisees in the crowd. It's definitely the scribes, the people who put themselves forward as the right people. And in this parable, those people are violent, angry, confident that they're right, confident that they're allowed the fruit, that it's their fruit, and isolated from the other servants and the master. Who does that sound like? It sounds like the older brother, if you were not listening to the first half of the sermon. <laughs> That's the same thing. So that's why we're going to talk about this parable in the same way. These people have, have every confidence that the fruit is theirs, not the master. That the vineyard is theirs, not the master's. Well, what is the fruit? The fruit is what the Lord should get from his creation. The Lord should receive from his creation love. I mean, he can have whatever he wants. What he chooses, though, is to have real relationship with us. And these guys, instead of giving the honor, giving the love to the Father, they step in and they want to receive it themselves. 
And you can see this from the scribes and the Pharisees in the first part of Matthew 21, where Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he cleans out the temple. In the temple, the people were supposed to come and meet with God. It was a place where they would pray and, and they would do sacrifices. They would remember that they were not holy, that they weren't allowed to be in front of a holy God. And so they would have animals that would be killed in real animal sacrifice, Old Testament stuff. What the Pharisees did was they took the outer court for the Gentiles, and instead of allowing the Gentiles to go in there and pray, they set up markets. Hey, you're coming from a long place away? No problem. Buy your sheep here, and then you can sacrifice it. Oh, you're trying to use that money from like, uh, you know, some other part of the Roman Empire? We got to change it. We got to change it to our local temple money. You're not just allowed to use any money here. And of course, we can exchange it for you right over there for a nominal fee. They created this marketplace. Jesus goes in and he clears it out. He's flipping tables and smacking animals and getting them out of there. Not like, you know, smacking them around, but like, like in movies where you smack a horse and then it, whoo, and then it runs away. He's smacking the animals and they're running out of there. Why? It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. My place is where people come to relate to me. But you have stepped in and made it a den of robbers, people who take what should be mine. They stepped into the relationship that people were going to have with God, and they made it about how they judged the people who came. They took some off the top. They set themselves up with very impressive outfits that showed that they were the godly people so that people would speak to them in high titles, so, people that would, would, so that people would give them honorable seats at feasts. The appeal, what's the appeal? The appeal is that you become God. You become the person who's in control. You become the person who's honored by people. You become the person who can do what they want to do. That's what the, younger, the older son wanted. He wanted the goat. He didn't want the father. And then the parable ends in this really interesting way where if you know the gospel, you see it coming. But if you don't, it's so crazy. The, the, the master sends his son. Would you send your son? <laughs> of course not. But here's the solution. We've talked about the problem. We've talked about the appeal. Here's the solution. He sent his son. Think about it. You're the master. You actually own some property in another country, Canada. You, you got one of those famous Canadian wine wineries that you own. I don't think they can grow wine in Canada. That was the joke. Okay, so you own a winery in Canada. You send people to go and collect the fruit, and they actually beat them up. And instead of calling bounties or whatever, you go, okay, I sent the dumb servants. Let's send the good servants, the good my good people that actually know how to get things done, the good people that are good with logistics, I'm going to send them. So you send them and more in number. And the people at the winery beat them up and even kill some of them. Would you then say, all right, son, you go. I'm sure it'll be fine. Of course you wouldn't. So is God dumb enough to do that? What's he doing? Well, he sends his son because... The solution that everybody else has is not the solution that God has. Jesus says, okay, what are they going to do to those servants? And the, the Pharisees go, they would kill those wicked servants. Those wicked servants deserve to be killed. And they're right. God should have just killed Adam and Eve after they broke his law. God should have just killed all of those people in the Old Testament instead of keeping up with them and allowing Israel to continue as a people. God should have just killed 
you and me, when we disobey his law. But instead, he sends his son. He sends his son to be killed. His son is innocent, but his son is killed. He knows exactly what he's doing, and he does it on purpose, and he does it for the people who are these wicked tenants. God, I hope that you understand in the story, you are the tenant. You have taken what is God's, and you've made it your own. You say, no, 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 I've been obedient. You've been obedient. Okay. No, you haven't. But let's just say you have. You've been obedient. Have you been obedient for God's glory because you love him so much? Or have you been obedient for your glory? So people will say, well done. You're really impressive. Come on. You're the tenant. And the tenants killed the son. Fast forward to Acts. Peter is preaching, and he preaches to the people who have just killed Jesus And he says what I'm trying to say to you. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And they all tremble because the the person they just killed is now God over all things. They heard that. They're cut to the heart. And they say to Peter, Brothers, what shall we do? We are those tenants. And what does he say? God's going to laugh at you and kill you anyway. Nope. He says... Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sin. And you will receive the gift of God himself, of the Holy Spirit. If you, if you will just repent, if you will just say, no, I was wrong, and there's things that I wanted, I don't want anymore, Lord, I want you. He says, okay. You come back, he goes, come on. <laughs> He's standing there looking at you and going, Everything I have is yours. I love you. Won't you come in? Well, the thing that might make you not want to is that same pride. All you have to do is go, oh, you're right. I'm wrong. I want you, not me. And he, makes, he, he, he gives you this forgiveness of sin, and he invites you into his family. Won't you do that? Don't you want that? Listen, I, I, I want to just take a minute here, because you may say, no, I'm a Christian. I've definitely done that before. You know, it was 20, I was 12 years old or 20 years old or whatever, like it happened. Okay. But is it possible that you have let yourself fall back into this older brother lifestyle? I'm going to say that it's not only possible, it's very likely. And it's part of the problem with the church, is that the church gets filled up with people who are really outside clean, inside judgmental and rude and angry and isolating. They're not very loving. Let me just ask you, is it possible that's you? Here's what I want to do. We're going to go old school. I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your head and just take a moment to think about yourself and think about yourself before God, to just ask some hard questions about who you are before a holy God. Is it possible that you don't live your life for his glory, but instead live your life for your glory? Is it possible that you're pretty confident that God's going to be impressed with the life that you've made, this portfolio you've put together of your own righteousness? Or are you poor in spirit and confident that you have to be forgiven? And you say, no, I, I know that I have to be forgiven. Okay, not just with your lips, but with your heart, do you know and believe? 
this morning is the opportunity. I, I would just ask you to repent and believe the gospel. Ask you to look up from yourself to the Father who loves you like this. Lord, as we're together and thinking about these things now, I, I ask you to give us the grace to understand what does it mean to really be yours? What does it mean to repent, Lord, of the things that we know are sin, but to repent of the righteousness that we do for our own glory and not for yours? It's possible for us to do things that on the outside are really impressive, but at the end of things, have you say, I don't know you. You created your own little kingdom and you tried to do what you could to make it as glorious as possible, but you don't know me and you haven't worked for my kingdom. Lord, will you scare us into repentance and then woo us with your love? There is fear that you're just going to kill those tenants, and we need to feel the fear of, of deserving that kind of justice. But then there's also the love, Father, that says, no, 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 I sent my son to die so that you can be forgiven, so that you can be brought into my relationship forever. Lord, please woo us with your love. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.